This episode is brought to you in part by the Second Mission Foundation. Second Mission Foundation is a nonprofit organization that exists to educate, elevate, and advocate for members of America's service community in order to help them find their second mission after government service. Second Mission Foundation was started by and for the members of America's service community. That means members of the armed forces, first responders, security contractors, etc. Second Mission Foundation provides these veterans the opportunity for them to tell their stories, reach their goals, and make their voices heard through educational outreach, entrepreneurship support, and community involvement. For everything you need to know about Second Mission Foundation, go to secondmissionfoundation.org. That's Second Mission Foundation, all one word, dot org, secondmissionfoundation.org. Profiles in Havoc is a Havoc Journal podcast. The Havoc Journal seeks to serve as the voice of the veteran community through a focus on current affairs and articles of interest to the public in general and the veteran community in particular. Havoc Journal strives to offer timely, current, and informative content. When you go to Havoc Journal, you will read the most articulate, opinionated, thoughtful, and provocative veteran writers writing about the nation, the world, politics, national security, culture, fitness, movies, the list goes on and on and on. Havoc Journal is always expanding, always striving to improve the reader's experience. Check it out at HavocJournal.com. That's Havoc with a K, Journal.com, HavocJournal.com. My guest today is the incredibly articulate, prolific, talented, popular Ben Cantwell. Ben is a former Marine and a current firefighter in the Bay Area in California. And um, Ben says he's never been a cool guy, but he is incredibly popular on Instagram as an artist. His artwork is everywhere, and it deserves to be. It's incredible work through a wide range of media, watercolors, drawings, sketches, um, digital art, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but what, stru- what struck me, I don't know if the most, but certainly first thing that comes to my mind right now recording this is um, that Ben, uh, it was Ben's unsatisfying stint in the Marine Corps. Um, I mean, he enlisted as a Marine infantryman in 2010. You know, as you guys know, I mean, you're enlisting the Marines in 2010 as an infantryman. And, you know, he talks about, no spoilers, but, you know, Ben, you know, said he was leaning into his Marine Corps experience. To go through that, only to not experience a combat deployment, is, uh, man, that's a case of some real... uh, I don't know what you call it, military blue balls. I, I don't know what you call it, but I mean, that's a lot of unrequited emotion and feeling and investment. And um, I was glad to talk to Ben about it. It's my experience and certainly a lot of the guests we've had on this show, not a lot of the guests, but some of the guests we've had on this show stand out as like Mason Roadrig, Dex, you know, folks like that, that have, you know, gone into the military looking for a fight and not gotten it. It's interesting the path that their lives take. Uh, it's interesting what their output becomes and how they've been able to assuage those feelings of that unrequited 
I want to say unrequited bloodlust. Uh, that just sounds really cool and poetic, but I don't know how accurate that is. Let's call it unrequited um, adventure, unrequited experience. That's a that's some heavy stuff, and I think it's something that a civilian audience probably can't fully understand or appreciate. I think it means something to those of us in the veteran community, and it's um, and I've. It's interesting that the folks I've talked to that have, you know, um, placed themselves as much in harm's way as the government would allow them, yet not gotten the satisfaction of accomplishing a mission in those circumstances. Um, it's interesting how the how their what turns their lives have taken, and Ben is no exception to that. Um, and I think it's a credit to him that I mean, when I was talking to him, he just seems incredibly. Um, comfortable in his own skin, uh, well composed, um, calm, articulate, rational. Um, seems to have a very strong equilibrium and strong sense of balance. And I think a lot of that is, uh, I'm not giving anything away, is, is from the interview, but he talks about how much firefighting has meant to him and has scratched itches that the military didn't. And giving him a sense of purpose, and um, and I think Ben is a great test case of the natural reciprocity between the military and first responder communities. That um, you know, sometimes that the first responder experience is can be a lot more rewarding than one's time in the military. Anyway, and I think I think Ben's a great example of that. But you'll hear from him yourself. So I'm going to try to cut my comments short before I throw any more spoilers out. I had a great time talking with Ben. I cannot wait to talk to him again. Um, and if you're not aware of his art, you really should be because uh, it's badass and it's something that really is in service of the military and law enforcement community. Uh, sorry, military and first responder community, um, I should say. And uh, and that's worth seeing and worth hearing about and why those communities are so important to him. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer, and this is Ben Cantwell's Profile in havoc. Welcome to the show, Ben. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. Good to be here. Where are you now? You at home? Yeah, uh, I'm at home in my office in uh, California, in the Bay Area, where I grew up at. Got you. So. Do you do all your work from home? For the most part, yeah. Um, I've recently transitioned over to digital art, which is kind of a step away from the classic Sailor Jerry watercolor. But with some iPad magic, you can actually get pretty close to creating the real stuff. Let's let's talk about that for a second because I've had I'm talking to you in a in, in the midst of a bunch of weeks that I've had a bunch of Marine Corps combat artists on, and I know there's a lot of discussions in their community. And I have a feeling probably in art in general about digital art. What do you think there's a place for purists in this discussion? Is there any validity to going, eh, hey, look, if it's not pen on if it's not you know, pen on paper or if it's not brush on canvas, I you know, there's you're losing something. There's something is lost in transition. Is that valid or is that just really outdated and two-dimensional thinking at this point? Chris, I that's a good question, man. I think 
just like your toolbox, you got to have everything accessible to you. And there's a time and a place for pen to paper. And there's a time and a place for digital transitional files. If you have a client who wants seven different versions, then they want to have it in red and blue. And then they change their mind at the last minute and they want different text. If I'm putting ink to paper, it's going to take me 10 times as long and cost them a lot more of my time. Um, if somebody's starting off and their goal is to create a connection with the piece of artwork and really have that tactile therapeutic mm. uh, result, you know, nothing better than scratching some charcoal on a big piece of paper with a bottle of wine and really getting your guts out on that canvas, you know? That's a great freaking answer. Yeah. It's really, for, it, it sounds like it's almost more for the user, more for the the artists themselves than for an audience necessarily, right? It's the experience that the artist is going through is, is mm-hmm. what's affected by the medium. Is that fair? or is Exactly it, or, right. Yeah. Okay. You know, and sometimes when somebody purchases an art piece from me, they want me to create a piece there. They're fine with the digital print of it. And other times they want a, a hands-on version. I tell them, all right, we can do that. No problem. But it's going to be a little bit tougher to make a revisions, you know, and if you want a, copy of this for your t-shirt company it's not going to be as clean because it's going to be a scan of the physical work so you it's really it's all about communication just like everything dude it's like leadership or relationships just talk to somebody figure out what their goals are say how can i help you get what you need and then go from there so (laughs) what i love is that this is an incredibly pragmatic discussion um i mean we're talking about this like you're selling pizza slices. It's like, well, what the customer wants in this discussion, all this, what about for you? Um, I mean, left to your own devices, how much of your artwork do you do just for you that comes out that's like, motherfucker, I got to do something for me right now. I feel this. I want to capture something. And how much of it is based on commissions or based off something that you think might entice customers? Yeah, I'm, I'm really lucky, actually, Chris. A lot of my artwork kind of fills both categories. I work mm. with the majority of the people I work with are veterans and other first responders. And a lot of the work that they ask me to do is something that I enjoy doing. So every once in a while, you draw some weird logo for a company that you don't really know a whole lot about. And the guy's not a lot of fun to work with. And, you know, that that does help pay the pay the bills and pay the rent and stuff. But at least you know, nine out of 10 people that I work with, I enjoy talking to them and I enjoy the artwork and the combination of good people and good artwork is, is pretty fulfilling. And, you know, I do need to go and do my own pieces of art. Sometimes there are times when I need to revert, you know, one of the reasons I started doing art was for the therapeutic process. And I do need to go back to that. And I have other coping mechanisms I've built into my life now, which are super helpful. And I can kind of keep art in the business category, but if I have an idea, or if I have uh, a tough time with something, I need to make art, I'll make it, you know, I'll push, I'll message people say, Hey, I'm having a tough time right now. I got a lot going on. I'm going to need to push this project back five days. And people are pretty understanding about that. And that's one of the other good things about this community is not only the interesting artwork, but the understanding. Mm, yeah. And there's, and there's a degree of bottom line practicality right with their request because they're going hey i want you to i mean i'm and i'm speculating correct me if i'm wrong but it seems like there would be a lot of um hey i want you to capture this or i've got a picture of that or so they really they care about the bottom line they care about what the output is and they're willing to adjust fire as needed to kind of facilitate hey what do you as the artist need 
because I really want this captured in a certain way. Is that accurate or is that not always how it goes? I think that's pretty accurate, man. A lot of vets are, um, I think, something that's built into us is being overly humble and kind of doubting ourselves a lot. And I see that a lot when it comes to talking about art. You know, somebody will have this crazy idea and I'll say, listen, dude, if you can make me a sketch, a basic pencil and paper sketch about what this might look like, you can use stick figures. It'll really help me narrow in on the whole design, you know, just to get mm-hmm. the layout. And a lot of guys, oh, I can't draw stick figures, man. I'm shit at art. And I'll say, give it a shot, dude. And they'll turn, they'll turn over something that's pretty good. And mm-hmm. they'll say, oh, I'm not creative. I can't think of anything. I'll say, well, let me ask you a few questions. And after you ask the right questions, They'll have come up with a color scheme that's really intense and beautiful. Mm. They'll have come up with some symbolism that transcends a few different genres and a few different communities. And that's always a lot of fun to kind of draw that out of people and say, in the beginning of this, you said you were going to be hot shit at thinking about art. And you came up with this color scheme. You came up with these symbols. You came up with this this text. You found these images online for us to kind of reference. So it's a lot of fun to work with people. And a lot of times folks will say, hey, I came to you for a reason. I trust you. Here's my ideas. Go for it. I don't have any input. I know I'll like the output and I'll give them something that they enjoy. And in between those two things where I have full control or with I'm working with somebody to get like a final product that they have a lot of stay in, it's going to be fun either way. You know, do you find that a lot of your interactions become semi-therapeutic with your clients that there's because they haven't gone down the path of mapping out some artistic scheme in their minds ahead of time that you kind of have to hold their hand and walk them through a process that is undoubtedly going to uncover kind of some deeper truths and some emotional upheaval and something that's important enough for them to reach out probably beyond their comfort zone to even want a commission or to seek you out. And again, I'm I'm kind of making this up, but I just wonder if that is a natural byproduct of the interaction and the interviewing and the development that you do in creating your work. Yeah, I I maintain uh, friendships and relationships with a lot of uh, people that I work with. You know, if somebody messaged me two years ago and we created some art together, I'll still we'll still send each other memes and talk about dumb Mm -hmm. stuff every once in a while. And I really try to keep my uh, lines of communication open because. I think it's important to to foster that relationship and friendship. And when people message me and they say, "Hey, I'm I'm looking for a unit T-shirt that's going to be a gorilla holding a machine gun with a dip in and a Mall's magazine uh, pouches are full of rippets," you're like, "All right, dude, we can. This is cool." And you know, the same day I'll be talking to somebody who's working on a memorial piece for their friend who passed, and they're going to sell those shirts to try to raise raise money for the, their kid's college fund, and being able to jump back and forth between those two and kind of code switches is it can be taxing sometimes, but at the end of the day, you see the final product and it's extremely rewarding knowing you can impact both of those situations. For you, what is, where do you get high at this point? What is it that, that really brings you um, the deepest sense of satisfaction? Is it burying yourself in the work itself? Is it, the conversations? Is it the relationships? Is it seeing the end product? What is it that really turns you on? And 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 you're like, fuck yeah, that this was uh this is why I do what I do. Yes, all those. Uh yeah. it's, it's it's tough to put a finger on just one aspect of my work that I enjoy more than the others. You know, making a really cool piece when somebody says, Hey man, I have this idea, go for it. And I have total artistic freedom, that's enjoyable. 
when somebody messaged me and says, Hey, remember you told me to pursue my passion two years ago? I did. Mm. And I'm a better person for it. Thank you. And then making a piece for a company that um, is extremely financially rewarding and I'm able to, you know, pay my rent and, you know, lift myself up as a professional artist and able to continue doing what I love doing. That's also incredible, you know? So it's, it's pretty much, there's, there's almost no aspect of this job that is bad, except for when things don't go as well as when I try and experiment with something and it's not as gangsters, I thought, or this color scheme really doesn't do super well, you know, or I make a product and I try to really sell it. And I sell a handful of them. I'm stuck with a bail box in my garage, you know, but that's, that's being an artist, dude. That's taking risks. Yeah. Yeah. What do you do for your own, to scratch your own artistic itch? Do you find that you need to go out and kind of uh, refill the well occasionally, go immerse yourself in art or movies or TV? Or what, what do you do to replenish your own artistic wellspring to come up with ideas? Or do you find that you're just brimming with stuff and you're just fertile and you're like, hey, I, that, that's never an issue for me? Yeah, I, I really immerse myself in um, conversation and just the community in general. Um, I'm also a, I'm a full-time firefighter. And just being at work, talking with guys, hearing the stupid jokes, you know, so much of my art, especially my early work, kind of relied on the the inside jokes, the charms, candies, or the jalapeno cheese versus the bacon cheese from MREs and what was better. And finding those little jokes and those little touchstones that we can share pretty much across branches and a lot of time is those are kind of things that I like to latch on to. And if you have those moments and you understand those moments, all you have to do is look a little bit further and you understand a whole lot more. Yeah. You know, if you understand why Chili Mac is the best meal, you also understand the difficulty of deployment and the difficulty of being away from your family and what trauma this generation has been through. Just because you know about Chili Mac, you know, it's it's really just a a way for us to connect and also flag each other down and say, hey, I, I get what you're going through. I get what you've gone through. Are you from California originally? You said you grew up in the Bay yeah. Area? Okay. Yeah, I was uh, born in Washington, but I grew up in uh, California Bay Area. And then I was in, went to Pendleton, so California Marine. Got you. Got you. Keep, keeping it easy over here. So I, my, uh, my deep, I have a deep affinity for the Bay Area, and I've never been there. But it's based purely on the early 90s thrash funk scene. So that's what I, and I've never gone there because I feel like never meet your heroes. So I've never gone to experience how true to form or not that is. But to me, the Bay Area will always be Faith No More, Primus, Limbo Maniacs, that kind of stuff. And that's what I associate with that. To me, and what I love about that is just the innate creativity of that era. That was a very influential uh, music scene for me to never experience firsthand, but just to know of and to listen to and all that. Was that, was the Bay Area creatively, was it creatively inspiring for you? Was it something that turned you on? Did you uh, get exposed to a lot of art being there? For sure. Yeah. I, um, I think we all start our life being encouraged to create, you know, we're all told to paint and draw and write poems in elementary school. And then in middle school, it kind of falls off for a lot of people. And I was lucky enough to be encouraged to create art all the way through high school. Um, I was I was in an art class for every year that I can remember from K through 12. Wow. And that mixed with, you know, growing up with friends who did graffiti, 
um, which I, I was never cool enough to do, but just being around other creative people and being in art classes with art teachers who are professional, you know, they're teaching a bunch of high schoolers and they are artists themselves. They're making a living doing it and seeing that it can work. And then I kind of got a little more disillusioned um, after high school. You know, I bumped around in community college for a little bit, working weird jobs, and which led me to the Marine Corps. When that kind of, you know, some experiences in there kind of ticked my artistic creativity a little bit more. You know, started doing tattoos for guys or tattoo designs, rather, drawing portraits for them and stuff. And I was able to kind of look back and see this thing that was in my past, this art, which had been nurtured growing up in the Bay, a bunch of other hippies was now this like outlet for me and it was something that i could use to draw people together when you went what turned you off when you went to community college what turned you off about art or what what what, what scratch what itches was art not scratching when you were in community college well i mean you're 19 you're 18 you're 20 you're trying to pay bills you know your car is all fucked up you're going on dates you're trying to work as little as possible and party as much as possible and you're not really worried about, you know, the phrase you used earlier, filling your well. You're not worried about your spiritual um, fulfillment or your your path, your long-term health or anything like that. You're just kind of getting after it. Kind of the same phase that a lot of young service people are in. You know, they just they get that paycheck and they want to party and they're not super worried about next week. And at that point, art was only something I did because I had a class. Okay. And to go out of my way and make my own space where... I had the time and the material to do. It wasn't financially possible. And it, yeah. I'm sure it was possible, but it just definitely wasn't a priority for me. I'd rather rather get trashed and run around. So in a school system where it seems like everyone was being mandated to take art classes, art clearly wasn't separating you from the group. What, who were you then? Did you have an identity? I clearly, I mean, I'm assuming you had an identity outside of art class. I mean, were you a sports guy? Were you... A uh, cool guy. Where, like, what was your thing? That definitely never. Know? I've never been a cool guy, Chris. Um, I've always tried. Um, maybe someday, but I kind of did a lot. I, I, I think a lot of people view themselves as a chameleon of sorts, and I unfortunately fall into that kind of boring category. I can't give you the straightest answer. I played a, uh, I played team sports. I did water polo and swimming. Um, I was also an art nerd, so I was also talking about different kinds of paper and pencil. Um, I was also a skateboarder mm. and I played video games, you know, it's kind of, kind of all over the place. And I don't think I was extremely good at anything, but I definitely enjoyed my time in high school and community college. You know, what did you think you were going to do when you were getting to the end of high school and you, know, you were looking at options after, had you thought about your future? Had you thought what you wanted to do? Had you thought where all this was leading? No, um, I, I had a, I have a really good family. My family is incredibly supportive and it was kind of one of those. You can go, you know, do whatever you want. Don't be a serial killer and you'll be okay. You know, we, it wasn't a, we, we can't pay for everything, but we'll love you no matter what. I think that, um, that support, I was kind of just like, all right, well, I'm going to take a couple of years to figure it out. You know, I'm not going to, not going to go straight to college and start wasting money because I'm not really sure what I'm doing yet. And I think like a lot of young men, um, growing up in that time, you know, growing up during 9-11, the military was sort of the back of my mind. And I had a lot of mentors that had been in the military. And I was sort of thinking about that peripherally. And uh, family members had been in the military as well. And I think that was always sort of a backup, backup plan. And I realized that me and my homies, we were not really doing a whole lot then. And, 
you know, thankfully they're all doing really well. We've got a doctor buddy. I got a couple guys in law school, got a couple buddies who are nurses now. We're all doing well, but in 2010, it was, we weren't doing shit and I kind of needed to jumpstart myself. So for you, was there any idealism in joining the Marine Corps or was it a purely practical decision? Like, Hey, this makes sense. It's a paycheck. It'll give me direction. What was the thought process? I mean, I think I would argue that that's idealism in itself to become something that you can be proud of is I think the same vein as um, helping a country that you can be proud of. And I was for sure upset about 9-11 and, you know, this feeling of being attacked and like I wasn't helping enough this country that had given a lot to uh, my family and myself and that we had benefited so much from, you know, I was barely paying taxes at that time. And yeah, my family and I've had a lot of service members in my family as well. And feeling that sort of um, the combination of opportunity and obligation to mm. do your part and make a man out of yourself and come out after four years or eight years and have been through the metal and be tough enough to kind of hang with the big boys. And, you know, you knew you were going to go do something worthwhile. I could, no matter what happened in those four years, I knew I would have done something better for our country and my community. That's not, I don't think, and this is all anecdotal. Um, this is not, uh, you know, empirical data I'm throwing out here, but it's, it seems to me that's a rare thought. It seems to me that's not a common thought that a lot of, that um, a lot of people would not have felt the weight of any obligation or duty necessarily. Um, that wouldn't have been their first instinct. That seems like that, that it did resonate more with you in some way. Do you think if there, if you had been, let's say, you know, uh, I don't know, a super gifted microbiologist or lawyer type or something like that. And you've been like, dude, I got to go to college. I got to go to law school. Would you have felt the same thing? Or did your kind of natural flexibility and the fact you're kind of interested in a lot of different things kind of leave you open to go, hey, I see an opportunity here to do something for the country, and and I feel like there is kind of a more moral obligation that I have? Yeah, I think with the military and service, it's much more of a moral obligation. I, you know, you rarely hear, unless somebody's being a total dick them say like, well, my dad's a doctor and his dad's a doctor. So I had to be a doctor. You know, the people I hang out with wouldn't really say that or take pride in saying that. But, you know, you go to any platoon and you ask some dude, and, you know, his grandpa was a soldier and his great grandpa and his dad. And there, I think people in the military, like we talked about, are much, uh, much more humble and they don't want to talk about some of the heavier things that push them to make decisions. You could have a good old boy from somewhere and he'll say, so I didn't know what else I was going to do, but be a soldier. And I think that's code for, I felt obligated to carry on this tradition that my family has been, you know, contributing to this country's history for so long. And you're not going to see that with other less honor bound careers. I think you would see it with cops and firefighters and, you know, other, other things that we value very highly as a society, but yeah, I hope that answered your question. I think it was no, a little bit there. No, 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 no. It 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 does. It answers it and it also opens up another vein. Um because you're touching on what you touched on one of the um on one of the third rails that always kind of gets my ears perked up. 
which is uh, manhood and young men's need to prove themselves um, or become men. Did you feel that? Did you feel like you needed dirt on your nails in order to take any next steps in life? Did you, was that something that was kind of a consideration of like, hey, what is a man? And a man naturally is going to have to be tested beyond his comfort level. And the military is one of the few places you can do that legally. And uh, again, my words, not yours, but I mean, it, does that make any sense to that track with your thinking at that time? Yeah, totally. Um, I don't think I thought about it that much at that time. I, I had people in my life who had been in the military and some who hadn't. And those people I looked up to, whether they had a military background or not, had these militaristic values like, um, you know, dedication, um, just all, all the shit you get from Boy Scouts, all the stuff that you get from community service, kindness, action, not being timid, a little bit of toughness, being able to take a punch. So sort of these strong, traditionally masculine values. And I think I looked forward to getting there more than I did looking forward to the process. Mm -hmm. At that point, I was much more about the end game and ending up like these guys who had good lives than I was about going through the process. And what I've realized now looking at those 10, 15 years ago is that you can get to those, those end goals and to become that sort of person through a multitude of different paths and mine worked, but it's not the only one for sure. And there's, I think a lot of people these days are finding different ways and that's, I think that's awesome. What did you, um, what did you think the military was going to lead to for you? Do you think it was going to be a career or did you think it's, Hey, let me go in, let me get this experiential wisdom and come out and go on to greater things. And I'll see what other vistas open up in front of me. What was your thinking when you went? What was your expectation? Yeah, I was pretty open, but I think I went in kind of thinking, like if I, if I was guessing, you know, at the ripe, wise age of 20, I was probably going to guess that I would do four or eight years and then come back out. Okay. And when you signed up, uh, what'd you sign up as? Would you, what did you enlist as? So I went a uh, 0300 um, open infantry contract. So I could have been placed as a, machine gunner, but I was a 170 pounds. So I didn't do that. And I could have been a mortarman, but I didn't understand how fractions work. So I couldn't do that. And I could have been an assaultman, but, um, my nuts were too large. So I couldn't do that. <laughs> Sorry if you're an assaultman out there, those guys are going extinct and I always like to rag on a little bit. So, uh, I, I think it's one of the understated moments in a military career when you sign that contract and you have an idea of like what your MOS is going to be. And that's kind of a big moment. And a lot of times people kind of blow past that for you. What did it mean for you? Were you like, fuck yeah, I am. I mean, cause this is also trick me if I'm wrong. We're talking like 2010 ish timeframe. Yeah. So, I mean, there's wars going on, you know, there's wars going on, you know, there's surges happening. Um, and your Marine infantry, I mean, what did, what did that mean to you? Did you, were you like, do you feel like a, a roller coaster that suddenly was starting to get to start descending? You're like, fuck, I'm, I don't know if I'm ready for this. Or was there a real sense of excitement? What, what were you feeling like? Dude, I really leaned into it. Uh, boot camp was a big kick in the ass for me. And I think I came out the other side, you know, extremely, um, I want to say, I want to say hardened and in retrospect, brainwashed, you know, it worked. It did what it was supposed to do. I came out and I thought I was a fucking mean dude. 
And I was a, I was a, I was a pretty bad dude, I guess. I wasn't going to kick anybody's ass. I didn't learn how to, you know, Marine Corps martial arts program didn't do a whole lot of wonders, but well, I felt bad, you know, mm. and I didn't join the Coast Guard. I didn't join the Air Force Reserve. I joined the Marine Corps Infantry. So I definitely wanted that experience. And you're right, you know, growing up 2003, 2006, you're watching the surge, you're watching Baghdad, you're watching Fallujah, you're watching all this shit go down. You're like, those are the guys I want to be with. And I think that's one of the reasons uh, I have a lot of family history in the Army and the Marines. And I chose the Marine Corps because I thought that those are the baddest dudes. And if I'm going to be next to other guys, maybe I'll be as bad as them. And I want to be surrounded by, I'm sure the same reason guys try to go SF or tier one or whatever, you know. How did you feel um, then going to your first duty station and actually being in the Marine Corps? Were you still um, totally into it? Or was it, were there moments where you're like, this is good for right now, but I can tell this isn't me. This isn't going to be long-term. Or were you like, dude, I'm home. This is, this feels great. Yeah. I, I loved it for a while, dude. I was with my buddies. I was hanging out. I was in the barracks. I was single. Um, and I, I drank the Kool-Aid pretty hard. I think my, um, I did two, two peaceful deployments. I had no combat experience. So I was a little bit disillusioned after I got to a unit that was slated to go to the Pacific. Everybody with the last name, I think like Jay and afterwards went to a seven Marines and they went to Afghanistan. Everybody, the front half of the alphabet went to Pendleton and we went to uh, Hong Kong and Japan and Australia, which was fun, but definitely not when my recruiter told me what was going to happen. I think that started to kind of take a little bit of the uh, wind out of my sails. And then when I picked up corporal before my second deployment, I got to see a little bit of how the sausage was made as far as up the chain of command and kind of seeing what my future held with all these sergeants and staff sergeants dealing with paperwork and rosters and officers and, you know, all these lists. And they said, man, I just, I can't wait. I hope I get to go to uh, the patrol ops with you guys next week. I'm like, what do you mean? That's what we're supposed to be doing. Like, oh no, I got to stay back and finish these rosters before deployment. I don't want to fucking do that. I want to be out with these dudes getting stinky, you know? So after the second deployment, did you know you were out? Were you like, hey, this is it. Uh, my, my fund meter's been pegged. Yeah, I, I saw all my staff sergeants and gunnies and sergeants and what my future could hold if I continued on the path of not being a shitty Marine and kind of like, you know, kept trying to promote and do the right thing, keep drinking the Kool-Aid. And I wasn't super stoked on it. Um Additionally, I saw some of my senior Marines that who had gotten out before and how much fun they were having. And the GI Bill looked really good from the uh, barracks in Camp Pendleton. So I kind of readied for transition out, picked out a school, and uh, came back home. What did you think you were going to do besides go to school? Did you, what was the what was the focus? Did you have degrees in mind? Did you have a career path in mind? No, none at all, dude. I got a I got an associate's degree in sociology when I joined the Marine Corps from my time in community college. And sociology is kind of like the, the, you know, the hippie twin of communications and psychology degrees, where it's like you can do a whole lot with it. And it's not the most, um, you know, it's not astrophysics. And I've got a bachelor's in that um, in San Francisco, which. I don't know if you know this. I'm sure you do, but a lot of a lot of listeners do. But the GI Bill gives you a housing stipend based on the zip code of your school, and San Francisco is one of the most expensive places to live. So, I lived in a Fruitvale district in East Oakland and took the train every day to school and saved a shit ton of money doing that. And you know, it paid my rent, 
paid for food, paid for beer, and I was actually able to save a decent amount and support myself while I did sort of odd jobs figuring everything out. And it took me a couple of years of volunteering and reconnecting with family to uh, decide to take an EMT course with a buddy of mine. And I really enjoyed that. And I said, hey, we don't make any fucking money as EMTs, dude. How do you, what do you do next? And I was like, oh, dude, we're all trying to be firefighters, you know, in so many right. words. I was like, oh, fuck. So I visited a couple of fire stations. I was like, oh, it's like the same as the Marine Corps, dude. It's just a bunch of fucking chill people working hard, you know, doing the task at hand, living together. And when something hard happens, you fucking bust ass and you get after it. And then you come back and you joke around. And I was sold right after that, dude. After a couple of visits to the fire station, my EMT license in my back pocket, I was ready to go. When you got out of the Marines, did you feel any regret? Did you feel like it had been fulfilling? Did you feel like it had done what you had wanted it to do? Or was there kind of more of an itch that really firefighting had to scratch? You're exactly right, dude. There was a lack of purpose. I had, I felt like I'd sailed around the Pacific, yeah. wasting government money. You know, force and readiness is good and all, but if you don't actually do anything, that's all you are. And I had kind of spent four years trying to make a difference and hadn't really felt like I had made one for anybody but myself and my immediate Marines, you know? And I think I went through the same um, drawdown effect that we all do when we get out, especially if we're living in the barracks where you go from living with your 30 best friends to not knowing anybody. And it took me a long time and actually going on calls and making a difference in the community I grew up in as a firefighter to sort of feel useful again. And that um, that hole of not going to combat and not doing a whole lot of actual work in the Marine Corps has definitely been filled by my my service now. Mm. Yeah, I can imagine. When did art start to reemerge in your life? Uh, towards the end of my time in the Marines, I, I'd always done bad sketches for people, but I started trading art for booze, actually. A buddy would want a tattoo drawing to show a tattoo artist because sometimes, especially younger dudes, can go into a tattoo parlor and feel a little overwhelmed if they don't have a plan. <clears throat> and uh, so I would draw something out and get a six pack. And then after a few weeks, I was doing that for 12 packs and then I bought, graduated like a bottle of Jack and then a bottle of Jameson. And finally, I did one drawing for a guy and somebody else wanted a, a print of it. Excuse me. <clears throat> So I made a print. I went down to like Kinko's or something and made him a print and he hung it in his barracks wall. And like I continued doing that once I got out of the military. It took me a while to get the social media set up and everything. But the progression of making that one print for that one friend has turned into this whole thing where I'm doing logos and t-shirts and cards and stickers and, you know, working with all these other big vet companies. So that became a business right away. Yeah, it, it did. It was a slow business. It was a kind of a barter system. And right. it took me a couple of years to go legit with the tax man and everything like that. But you know, once you build a website, if you want to be able to take credit cards, you have to go legit. And PayPal wasn't cutting and I was doing enough traffic. I was like, all right, this is time to sack up and pay up, you know? And this is while you're being an EMT or before you were doing EMT work? This was during the whole time. Yeah. So I got okay. out at the end of 2015 and got my EMT license the next year. And I was kind of doing art the whole time, doing side jobs the whole time. I did a little bit of um, 
after school care, which was a trip. And then, I, of course, I did construction and a little bit of shitty security and just kind of the standard post to Marine Corps jobs. And it was pretty cool when I realized, dude, I can fucking go out to dinner and have like an okay night with the money I made from art this week, you know, or this yeah. month rather. It took a long time for it to happen in a week. But but the fact that you were, this was all happening concurrently, um, that must have felt very, I don't know, holistic. I mean, you're you're suddenly an artist and going into EMT work and then becoming a firefighter. So you're kind of keeping all the halves of yourself together. Like, it's like, wow, I'm really able to fire on all pistons. Yeah. It's a, it's a blessing and a curse really dude. Cause when I'm at home, I can do artwork. And when I'm at work, I'm doing firefighting work. But at the same time, if I have enough projects to keep me busy, I have found a difficulty in the work-life balance. So, you know, if I have friends of mine and their sole uh, passion is firefighting. And if they pick up overtime, they go to work and they work overtime. But if they're at home, that's all they're doing. Yeah. And that's tough because, you know, when they're, when they need some money, they need to go pick up overtime. Whereas me, I can stay home with my dog and spend time with my family and not do that. Did you find, well, let's talk about the therapeutic aspects of art. So it, it seems like it started, or at least as far as we've talked about, it started from really um, kind of commer- a commercial basis. But I'm interested just therapeutically for you. What were you getting out of it? Um, what did you find by suddenly now going back in and using your art in a way that I presume you weren't using when you were in school and taking classes for it, that now it suddenly had a very real impact in your day-to-day life? Um, did it help you in the transition? Or was this just a whole new thing? Oh, yeah. It definitely helped. Um, I think I kind of went a backwards way around it that a lot of people do. I think a lot of people use art for personal gratification and therapy. And then it's admired and it becomes commercial. And that's an awesome path. For me, I was so busy and kind of short-sighted. I didn't really think about using art as a therapeutic tool. And then I purchased these supplies and stuff and was gifted a bunch of paint and paper. And I was like, all right, this is a good investment. So I can start making a little bit of an impact financially on my life selling art. And I was doing it and I realized, fuck, dude, this is, this feels really good. And I was kind of able to regain those, um, that looseness in consciousness and that ability to relax through art again. So I started off with gathering all of these supplies in order to, you know, work on my business. And then, you know, taking paints on travel on trips that I took, or, you know, I got sketchbooks full of stuff that I'll never show anybody because wow. it's, it's, it's mine. And it's, um, it was part of my process working through all that stuff after I got out. And I, I don't think I would have started doing that if it wasn't for the support of my buddies and my, platoon and my company and my family when I got out saying like, Hey, you can do this. Or, you know, my other buddy who hardly had any money saying, Hey dude, I will give you 10 bucks for this, uh, this art piece that you drew for me. And that's where the community support started, you know, just tenfold since then. Did it say, I'm I'm trying to remember exactly how you phrased this, but when you were talking about the work-life balance, it sounded like, um, you're the kind of person that if you're doing something, you have to be completely focused on doing it. Like you're not the kind of person that's going multitask and do your artwork at the firehouse. Um, is that, is that a help? Is that a hindrance? Um, 
talk about the struggles just kind of finding the right balance and both for your your business and also for your own headspace yeah it's uh it's tough i really try not to do artwork at the firehouse i feel like when i'm there on my 48 hour shifts that i should be there wholly and you know if i have something i really need to do if a client needs a um, a different digital format i'll make one real quick and send it to them but very rarely am I sitting down and actually doing artwork at the firehouse because when I'm there, I should be training. I should be sleeping. I should be eating well. I should be exercising. I should be going on calls. And I, I believe in being fully present for the work that you're doing. Um, at the same vein, when I'm at home, I try to set aside time to be fully present for art. And people that I work with are pretty understanding. If I say, dude, I've been having a rough week. I've been picking up a lot of overtime at work. I got a lot of crazy stuff going on in my personal life. This project's going to take an extra four days. And I think so many people are understanding because of the, uh, the increased awareness of like mental health and stuff that yeah. most folks are pretty chill with that. And I try to be very understanding if somebody is having trouble getting back to me or having trouble making payment or something. I try to reciprocate that understanding and just say, dude, we'll figure it out. It'll get there. Just keep me in the loop. You know, I'm trying to project a little bit um, because I feel like in my life, if I, I had to put a lot of my artistic ambitions on hold because I was busy doing something else. And I felt not just a responsibility to everyone I was working with to be focused on the job at hand, but also I wasn't sure I could trust my mind if I let it get too creative and then have to shift gears into a very pragmatic, you know, life and death business. Um, that's fine. My first job in the army was as an army firefighter, uh, ironically enough. And, and I, and I, and I had that struggle a lot there because I, I wanted to be writing and, and all that, but I was like, um, I, I couldn't make that transition. Do you, so I'm going to ask that this question in that with that as context, do you feel like when you return to the firehouse and you've had say a good couple of days doing art, do you, is it a hard gear shift? Is it hard to get the head space back? Do you really have to kind of go, all right, fuck sober up focus. Like, Hey, remember what the hell you're about. Remember your muscle memory, like get, you know, just kind of get the synapses firing again on that front and get very left brain. Or is it a very easy thing for you to switch back and forth? I think it was harder at first, um, but the separation of doing my art, you know, 99% of my art at home in my office or at the kitchen table, and then waking up the next day, not touching any art, making my coffee, getting in my car, driving the 30 minutes or one hour to the firehouse and parking and stepping inside and putting my uniform on and checking my gear. That process really separates everything for me. And if I was living at the firehouse 24 seven, it would be tough to flip flop back and forth, but the physical separation and sort of the ceremony of going to work and ceremony might be a little heavy, the routine of going to work and saying hi to the guys and checking in hearing, Oh, you guys had a fire last week. Tell me about it. What was it like? It's I'm, I'm super lucky. A lot of the people I work with are really passionate and I work for an aggressive fire department that is full of people who love to talk about their work and they love being there. You know, we don't have the problem where the slow houses are tough to get to. Everybody wants to work at the busy houses because we have an aggressive department. 
And a lot of the guys that I work with and the people I want to continue working with are like that. So you get to work and you're talking about work. You're in it, you know, whether you're teaching the new guy, which is still me for the most part, teaching me a recipe, or we're going to look at building construction, or we're going to go mess around with this new uh, straps for the rescue basket that we got. It's, it's all work when you're there. And it's really easy for me. You know, I'm thinking of myself as a cog in any machine. I love being part of a team in the Marine Corps. I love fitting into a team now and being engulfed by other people who are just excited to be there and talk about the technical skills that are super minute and might never get used. I love it, dude. So it's an easy gear switch for me. If I was at a department that didn't give a shit, it would probably be a lot harder. So that makes complete sense. The psychology of being in the firehouse, the psychology of being part of a team. I can, I can absolutely feel that. Who are you then as an artist? Because it seems like now that's a completely entrepreneurial, maybe even necessarily control freakish kind of setup. You're no longer the, a cog in a, in a wheel. You're now, you are the wheel and it's, it's your battle rhythm and it's your everything. Um, is that jarring? Is that disorienting? Do you find that very easy to just go, Hey, I'm, this is, I, I can dictate my op tempo now this is all up to me yeah it's it's interesting you talked about dictating op tempo and being the uh, the one in charge i think i am able to dictate my op tempo and kind of increase or decrease the amount of artwork that i do based on the time i have in my mental space but i still really do view my job as being part of a creative process because mm. very rarely uh, does somebody say hey Make me a piece of art. I don't give a shit what it is. Just make me something. <laughs> and those are fun pieces. But, you know, like when I was talking earlier about talking to somebody who didn't think they had artistic abilities and they actually come up with a really cool idea or some some incredible work or like they write a short poem and they want some text behind it. So I'm not creative, but I wrote this poem and I'd like an illustration to go with. And I'm like, dude, I don't know why you're saying you're not creative. You can just say you want some art. And that back and forth... Um, you know, I try to have more than just a 30 second conversation with every client. Sometimes that's all you need if they just want a logo or, you know, a recreation mm -hmm. of a family photograph or something. But being able to talk with somebody else, it, it still is kind of like a team, you know, it's a little bit less people. It's a little bit less critical. You know, you don't need to operate under high stress, but it's still a collaboration. All I'm doing is bringing the, um, the ability to get what you see onto paper in my handwriting or my drawing. When did you feel like your art kind of hit the next level? When did you feel like you had caught fire and that people knew who you were and that your work was progressing, getting the visibility that it deserved and that your skill set also was growing and, and you were, you know, really finding a home in that business? Yeah, that, that next level, dude, is like, it's like the stairway to heaven. You know, I don't think we'll ever get there. And when we do, we're dead and we can't make any more steps. But yeah, once in a while, I'll have like an old squad leader or even like an old platoon commander message me. And uh, a buddy of mine now who was my lieutenant, you know, asked me to do some art for his, uh, he's a battalion commander now. And he wanted me to do some art for his unit. And I was like, dude, this is pretty cool. And, you know, you get those guys hitting you up. They're like, hey, I was in your company i don't know if you remember me i was one of your junior marines boots and i was like ah fuck man cool and there's a kid at the uh, fire station who's a student worker who like brings supplies to the mm -hmm. different stations and i met him he's like hey are you ben camel i was like yeah he's like i was in uh i was in second battalion fourth marines after you 
I was in your company. And I, we were never there at the same time, but that was cool. And I was like, oh, fuck, man. So sort of that people hitting you up and, you know, I, I wouldn't really know. But I have my buddies reminding me and say, hey, man, I saw you were, you know, featured in like Black Rifle Coffee or like, um, not grunt style, but like, you know, another, you know, some savage t-shirt company where they're like, oh, yeah, just featured by Ben Kamar. It's like, oh, I know that guy. That guy, you know, we used to party together. I know he can't hold his liquor and that he, you know, terrible dancer. So it's it's good to have your buddies kind of check in with you and say, hey, man, I see you're doing well. Yeah, I wouldn't know it, but. What do you think, um, have you ever stepped back and just taken a look at your own work? Do you think, I'm assuming you think you've progressed as an artist, right? Yeah, it's, dude, it's constant progression. I think the curse of an artist is never thinking that it's good enough and kind of having that guy whisper in your ear that you're mortal and that you can improve, you know? So you can have a thousand people telling you that your shit's dope, but you'll be looking at it and you'll still see the flaws and you'll still see the areas that you can improve. What do you want to improve on? What is stuff that you look at and you're like, I wish I was better at X, Y, Z. Well, I think there's two areas for that. And I think there's some overlap. Um, In one circle, you kind of have the technical talent, you know, getting better at creating something that looks more realistic or capturing the sailor jerry uh, style in a better way and then the other circle is being able to make an impact so whether that's donating artwork to uh nonprofits or maybe even someday starting a nonprofit and making a difference in the community you know starting conversations where people can joke about the same stuff and reconnect and then that sweet overlap of that venn diagram is when you make good art for good causes and for a good reason, you know? So you're putting out a dank product that looks really good, you feel killer about, and at the same time, it's, you know, either raising a shit ton of awareness or raising a bunch of money for a good cause. I think that's that middle part is where I'd like to be at is doing work for with and for charities that can really bring home uh, an impact for our community. What do you do to get your technique better? Is there anything? Is it just repetition? Is it just, hey, I take on more jobs and I figure it out? Or do you ever set aside time? Is there any, any education that you have to go through uh, on an ongoing basis? Oh, yeah, yeah I, I push myself um, through techniques. A lot of times I'll ask like, hey, I know you want this done. Would you be okay with me trying this style on it? Mm-hmm. And about half the time it comes out pretty clean. And I only, only try that with a client if I have time. If they say, I don't really like this, I'll say, no worries. I understand. We're going to go back to what you wanted and we'll do that. I totally understand. Thank you for letting me see if you like my, uh, my vision of what this could be. And half the time they like it. And, you know, I'll either take that experience and put it as a tactic or tool or um, something to use later, or I'll scrap it because it didn't really work out. I've I've tried to make plenty of pieces and styles that didn't work out for me and I didn't master and I didn't like. And so learning by fire is yeah. one way. And then if you just go on YouTube, dude, especially with the digital art, there's so many shortcuts and stuff like that. And then even taking art classes, you know, I've taken art classes since I got out, just drawing and anatomy and learning about texture. And some of you know, these art classes have everybody from beginning students to master students. We're all drawing naked people. And seeing some dude on the left doing stick figures and then Michelangelo next to me 
doing his thing. And I'm right there in the middle kind of looking at where I've been and where I could go. So yeah, it's, it's all across the board, dude. Wow. That's, imp- that's impressive though. I think that's always a good sign when somebody's like dedicated enough to their craft, that they're constantly back in, in the workshop, trying to work it out and trying to find what else else is there. How much of your work is natural versus, I don't know. I don't want to use the word. I don't, I don't know what the verbiage is. I don't know if it's called uh, cartoonish or two-dimensional or something like that. Like, do you find that you're doing more of, I guess you called the Sailor Jerry stuff. You know, do you find yourself gravitating more towards that if you have your choice? Um, or what is it the, where, what directions do you want to go when you're left to your own devices? Dude, I really like it all. Um, I, I really do want to get back into hand painted watercolor pieces. Mm. Um, I have a painting that I did a while ago called the Sangin Shuffle. And yeah. it's based on a, a pretty famous photograph. And the, when I look at that, that's really the only art piece I have of my own hanging in my home other than like some birds and rocks and trees that I did a while ago. But that's like been my, my military themed office as many of us have. Um, and that piece really speaks to me and doing sort of creative, um, but realistically based emotionally evocative pieces with watercolor is fun. And then being able to connect with people and sort of that community engagement that you're able to get with silly sailor, Jerry style tattoos, you know, I think we're all familiar with the, classic tattoo of like the sailor with his little stick and a bag over his shoulder, kicking a can down the street. And I was uh, able to do a similar one of that with a guy, you know, carrying a machine gun and a huge rucksack. And there's a little rain cloud over him, just raining on him. It said, uh, says God loves the infantry. And then where it says love, love is scratched out. It says hate. So it's doing those sort of fun pieces uh, that are enjoyable and you can kind of work with other companies with, and people laugh at, and as they'll say, Hey, tag your, Tag your other infantry buddy and they'll say, remember that one time that you fell out because you suck at walking? And and then it's, you know, flip the coin and I can sit down in my office and do a painting that's a little bit heavier. But yeah. I think all over the place, man, I think I'm really in the vein that I want to be in. I just want to get better at it deeper, you know? I want to ask you about just your when you've had the chance to rub shoulders with other folks in the art world, whether that's at the class or or any other venue. How does that strike you? I mean, how do you feel? And I guess that kind of goes to a question of self-image. I mean, do you identify as an artist when you're in that context? Do you go, hey, listen, uh, do you feel like the jock in the room that's like, hey, yeah, I do stuff with military and first responders? How much of that uh, filters down? Because that's obviously a pretty different world in a lot of yeah. respects. So how, where do you, how do you see yourself there? Um, or does it not just not matter because, hey, everybody's doing their own thing and this is all irrelevant? Just how, does that, how do you stack up in that world? I don't think it'll ever be irrelevant, man. I think um, when I'm around other artists or civilians, I really don't talk about the focus of my work as much than my experiences. I like to keep a little bit more private life um, when I'm out in public. And when I, I've had the opportunity, actually, I went to uh, Florida. I was flown out by NSU to do a... Uh, a panel of veteran artists there and i got to meet some other people that i know that you've had on mm-hmm. and i'll recommend the others to you later and meeting with them was incredible all these super accomplished artists um like cj um lz just all these wonderful people who are so technically proficient and kind 
And it was kind of a trip, dude, because they were all like, oh, Ben's here, the OG, you know, dude, tell us how you did your business. Like, what website do you use? How do you do this with clients? And I was like, oh, shit. These guys are like talking to me and looking for advice. I was like, oh, yeah, I can tell you what website I use and like how I set up this uh, path for prints to go through to like maximize profit, like minimize the cost of the customer and keep shipping cheap while like protecting stuff. And so it kind of realized that I kind of had this business acumen that I didn't really know about. It's the same. I'm in a group of um, veteran artists on Instagram and we just send each other stupid shit all day. But every once in a while, somebody will be going through a situation either, you know, technically with color schemes or with composition or with a client and I'll sort of chime in. And thankfully that um, my two cents is usually pretty well received. And that, that always feels good to be part of that community and be uh, regarded as somebody who kind of knows what they're talking about. Yeah, I don't doubt it. How much do you need the first responder of military community to be your subject matter? Would you would you have any enthusiasm for doing any other subject matter? I think I wouldn't have grown to this point. I think the support that the veteran community has shown me and now the budding first responder art that I'm making, you know, I wouldn't have gotten this far. I would have you know, if I was drawing cats and dogs for the last seven years, I wouldn't have made enough. Frankly, I wouldn't have made enough money or would have enjoyed myself enough to have continued doing it. You know, talk about what that's meant to, because I, I have to believe kind of with your, it's called unsatisfying stint in the Marines. And then what seems like a much more satisfying career as a firefighter. Like it seems like the arts filled a void for you in a lot of ways, not just artistically, but it's also started a lot of conversations and it's kept a lot of communication and a lot of connectivity going. Um, is it's been more than just art? It's more than just like you've said. It's not just uh, you doing this for yourself in a closet somewhere. I mean, this is this. It's very much part of a community. What has that meant to you? I mean, how has that fit into your entire transition and into who you are now? Yeah, I think unsatisfying is a pretty great word for my time in the Marine Corps. You know, I enjoyed it and I had a blast, but I didn't get that uh, that experience that a lot of us crave and covet and um, kind of hold high as something pinnacle in our lives. And my time in the military could have been defined by just those four years, but because of my ability to create art, for other vets, I've sort of redefined what the military has meant to me. And instead of just being butthurt about not going to combat, I've been able to make a pretty significant difference in the lives of people who have come back from combat and, yeah. you know, and otherwise. What's next for you? What's the future hold? Or is it, hey, I'm going to run this, run this race until there's no more of me left? Or is, do you have ambitions to go more, to do an illustration book, uh, you know, I mean, uh, any number of permutations that you could take that hard. Is there any other plans yeah. that you're thinking of? Dude, seven years ago, I wouldn't have thought that I would be on album covers and in magazines and making playing cards and doing children's books and making stickers for huge companies. And I bet in another seven years, I'll be doing even weirder shit too. <laughs> and as long as I'm enjoying it, dude, and as long as it makes sense and as long as it's not, 
killing me. I'm just going to keep riding the wave. I have a, a good buddy of mine that I grew up with in the Bay Area here is uh, much more spreadsheet inclined than me. And he sort of keeps me grounded when it comes to new projects, whether it makes financial sense or not. Mm. So with, uh, and he's, he's a, he's down to ride too. So we're both just going to do this until the wheels fall off. Wow. Uh, Ben, tell everybody where they need to follow you website, social, all that stuff. How do they need to reach out to you? Oh yeah, Chris. Um, Instagram is my biggest thing. Um, Ben Cantwell art. Hopefully you find me. I have a website with the same name, bencantwellart.com. Custom work is something that I love doing. So if anybody's interested, just shoot me a direct message on Instagram or Facebook or one of the emails that you can find uh, anywhere on the website or the bio. I try to be pretty responsive. I usually get back to folks fairly quickly. And if you are looking for like a cool gift, I've got literally hundreds of art pieces I've done over the years available on my website and everything we do is printed in the U S and shipped from the U S and it's out of my garage, my buddy's garage. So it's, uh, it's, it's going and it's good. And if you have any issues with, you know, we, we're not too big for our britches. If your package gets lost, we'll send you another one. If it's damaged, we'll send you another. If you don't like it, we'll do an exchange for you, you know? So just reach out. I'm just a regular dude and I'm just an artist, man. Just, kind of having fun and making drawings. There's one question I want to end with, uh, because I feel like it would be important, especially in our community that doesn't always have a ability to communicate themselves well in an artistic setting. What sucks for you? What, when you get a client calling you up, what's not helpful? What, what is the, what are the attributes, the characteristics, the asks that, you're like, I don't know what to do with that. I'm lost. I'm confused or I'm frustrated. What, what's an unhelpful, what, what's something somebody should not do if they don't know how else to interact with you and they need something. If you asked me five years ago, I would have had a big laundry list for you, (laughs) but currently the only unhelpful response is no response because I've learned how to draw out the, um, the emotion or the vibe or the art that somebody wants, it's stuck in their weird little head. I've known how to ask the right questions and send the right sketches that if we keep talking, we're going to get something you like. And I've done hundreds of custom pieces of art, probably close to a thousand by now. And I think I've only had maybe two or three people who are just straight up disappointed and we couldn't figure it out. And, you know, after a refund, it was like, no, fuck that didn't work out. But even if it takes a shit ton of renditions, dude, as long as you keep communicating with me, we will get you something you like. And if we make something and you're not super stoked on it, we'll start again. There's no harm, no foul. Dude, uh, I've wanted to get you on the show for a long time, and I'm glad we got a chance to talk. This was a blast, and I hope it's not the last time. Because uh, God forbid if you have bigger, brighter projects coming up too, is as the art continues to morph and take on new uh, mediums, uh, I'd love to talk about it. Yeah, that would be awesome. Dude. I had a, I've, I've done a few podcasts, and this is one of the most fun. This conversation was really easy to have, and I'm definitely looking forward to coming back sometime soon. I'd love it, man. Cool. Well, thank you for having me, Chris. That was Ben Cantwell's profile in Havoc. Um, really looking forward to having Ben back on the show. Um, whenever that is, but, um, I'm piggybacking this episode 
with uh, Savage Wonder. And I said it at the end of the Savage Wonder episode, and I'll say it again here. Uh, I'm excited to see what the future holds for him. I think he's got so much cool stuff going on. I'm sure he's got something in the pipeline uh, that will develop uh, sooner or later, and probably sooner. So look forward to talking to him again. If you got and, and seriously, if you guys have do not know his work, check it out. Uh, it's very badass work um, and moving, soulful, funny. As you guys heard, you, you heard him describe the kind of stuff he, he captures. Um, very, very cool stuff, though, and, and stuff that's worth, uh, I don't know, worth m- the veteran community's interest and support. And um, I'll be honest with you, he's doing great. It's not, it's not like we're, we're, we're blowing the lid off this. I mean, this is kind of a, an open secret at this point. But uh, but if you don't know his work, it's very worth your while to check it out. Okay, we started off this episode talking about this episode's first sponsor, Second Mission Foundation. And I'd like to take a second and thank the other sponsor of this week's episode, Veterans Repertory Theater. Veterans Repertory Theater is a tax-exempt, nonprofit 501c3 organization which provides a platform for talented veterans to create compelling live theater and events. And of course, full disclosure, that is my nonprofit. So at the risk of being incredibly self-serving, um, I'm thanking my own nonprofit. Anyway, be that as it may, uh, this is traditionally where I would brag about all the stuff going on at VetRep. And I will. Um, I'm not totally sure when this episode's getting released, so I'm not sure what is appropriate for me to brag about. At this point, I guess there's a couple things I can say. I mean, first, if you're a veteran and willing to travel to the Hudson Valley region of New York, uh, we have acting classes and writing classes for veterans available right now. That's a new line of effort that we're starting. We have scholarships available for veterans. And again, we, we define veteran much more broadly than the VA. If you're a current or former military, law enforcement, fire, EMS, intelligence services, foreign service, DOD employee or contractor, or an immediate family member, we have scholarships for you. So don't let the prices fool you. Um, give us a call. We can work out something um, to make sure that there's low to no cost for you to come take classes with us. Um, right now, these are just standalone classes. Um, the more folks we have signed up, the more these will become um, not just a month-in, month-out thing, but maybe a week-in, week-out thing. So uh, you can check those out at vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. And then on April 13th, in beautiful Old Town Alexandria, at the world-class Principal Gallery on King Street, we are returning there for our second Savage Wonderground immersive art performance. So this is where we get a very eclectic group of veterans in the arts together and put together a cohesive narrative, cohesive themed show in a very crazy, unique space. And um, we give you a grazing table, we give you some drinks, and we let uh, and we just spin a story. And it's very cool. Uh, this show, I'm happy to say, we have announced our artists. We are going to have the head of the Marine Corps Combat Art Program, Chris Battles, 
will be there doing live art. We will also have a singer-songwriter, Logan Vath. He's a Navy veteran. I am not a big singer-songwriter fan. Logan is fucking incredible. I, I seriously am so impressed with his talent. Like, I listen to his album nonstop, and I'm not the guy that sits and listens to singer-songwriters. I think a little of that goes a long way. Logan is truly um, an incredible talent, and I'm thrilled that he's going to be doing the show. I think it'll be very, very, very cool. Um, our own Kay Dexter will be there, former Marine and current poetess, and uh, Navy, Navy veteran and storyteller extraordinaire Charles McCaffrey will all be there on April 13th. So if you want to get tickets, you can go to vetrep.org, V-E-T-R-E-P.org, vetrep.org. Just scroll down the homepage or go to the Now Playing tab. You'll see how to get tickets to it. Um, you can also go directly to the Savage Wonder website at savagewonder.com. Again, that's savagewonder.com. That is our website for all things related to veterans in arts that are not theater. Go to savagewonder.com, and you'll see there's ticket buttons everywhere on that homepage. Click on it, and you can get tickets. Uh, tickets are 20 bucks, and we split all the proceeds with our veteran artists. So really good use of your money and a badass use of your time. You're going to enjoy the hell out of yourself at that event, April 13th at the Principal Gallery. So check that out. For everything else that we're doing, and there is a lot of other stuff that we're doing, uh, go to vetrep.org. Um, on the homepage, if you scroll down, you'll see the button. It's right there where you can subscribe for free to our literary blog, which doubles as our mailing list. So if you subscribe there, um, we will send you every day a little piece of veteran writing, poetry, fiction, creative nonfiction, to your inbox. And beneath that, in the same email, we will send you, uh, there'll be a bunch of uh, shameless plugs and links to stuff and events that we have going on. So the best that's the best way to stay in touch with what we are doing. And uh, yeah, you'll be able to come check it out when, you, when it fits your schedule. So um, if you have not subscribed to it, I would highly recommend that you do because that's also where we send out our first notice of things. We send you deals. Like all the special treatment goes to people that have subscribed to the literary blog. So very worth it for that. Okay. I think that's everything I have to cover for the time being. need to thank the producer of this episode, Mike Neal. I'm Christopher Paul Meyer on behalf of Ben Cantwell. See you next time for another Profile in Havoc. Thank you.